thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. It's always a privilege to present the Word of God to the church, uh, albeit this time through purely digital means. Uh, if you missed our service on Sunday, uh, it had some problems going up online, so this is a fresh recording of the sermon for this podcast, but I'm just so excited to be able to share uh, the Word of God, and I thought that this message was too important to skip, so uh, please, I hope that you are ready to listen today uh, and uh, just join us as we walk through the Word of God this morning. Um, I want to start off by saying I am constantly in awe of the goodness of God and the provision that He gives. I I've said it before and I will say it again, but it is truly a grace that God would save even one rebellious sinner, much less the multitudes from every tribe and tongue and nation that he saves. To think that he would save a wretch like me is humbling and honestly mind-blowing. When we understand that God is pure and unadulterated righteousness, we begin to see the true cost of our sin. We begin to grasp why it says that the wages of sin is death in the book of Romans. When we understand that God is holy, and holy means completely set apart, that he cannot tolerate sin, we see what a true expression of love it was for God to send his son Jesus to cover the cost of sin for sinners like you and me. You might feel like, Brad, you talk about this stuff all the time, but that's because it's so true and necessary. We truly should be brought to awe and tears when we consider how great a sacrifice it was that Christ made for us and how unmerited such a gift was in the first place. As we begin to walk through our section of scripture today, it is very important to remember the true grace it is that God would save even anyone. I love how it's put in Psalm 18. If you look up Psalm 1830, it says, this God his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Let me break that down a little bit. This God, the one true God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who knows the number of every hair on every head, the one whose divine nature and power is evident through everything that is made, his way, that God's way is perfect. He never fails. He never lies. He is righteousness. It is that God who lords over the earth and every decree, every word he utters proves to be true. Even when it's doubted by many, the Lord will be vindicated in the end. His word will prove to be true. Every syllable, every judgment is right and true and perfect and happening. That same God who is so above everything, by that I mean such a master over all of creation, is a shield for every single person who takes refuge in him. That's grace. He doesn't owe it to anyone to shield them. But in his great love, God cares for all those who abide in him. So remember these three things. God is perfect. His word is true. And he graciously saves. God is perfect, his word is true, he graciously saves. 
We got to remember those truths as we begin to look at our scripture today. The scripture that we're looking at today should make all of us take a moment and pause, take a step back. It's my hope that all of us would be attentive today, not to Brad's word, not to the pastor's word, but to God's word. Today's scripture is one of the most sobering sections of scripture in the New Testament. If you have not already, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Last week, we looked at the marks of a false prophet. We said that we can evaluate those who are not from God by their character, their creed, and their converts. Uh, It is absolutely essential to mark and avoid false teachers because their message does not bring glory to God. Rather, it leads people to destruction. Remember, Jesus called those false teachers, he called them ravenous wolves. While they may appear godly, they are actually devouring the sheep that follow them. We must look at a teacher's fruit to evaluate their true intentions. Our scripture today flows from that concept, but with a dramatic shift. We're no longer looking at false teachers, but false converts. We have moved from false prophets to false professors. This conversation may make us a bit uncomfortable. That's because maybe it should. Today we will see that many people who claim to know the Lord in reality know nothing. We are being confronted by the reality of our position before God. This is a message so serious that we can't obscure it with pleasantries. We got to be blunt and honest. Lay out the facts. Sin is real. Sin incurs eternal death. There is but one way to forgive sin, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. And there will be those who say they have faith in Christ when in reality they have nothing. Let's go to God's word and see what Jesus teaches us about false professions. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All these verses are so intertwined in their meaning that we really got to be looking at them together. What's happening is Jesus is illustrating what happens to false converts on the day of judgment. Jesus has already said uh, a few verses prior to this that the gate is wide that leads to destruction. He's shown us that the gate is narrow that leads to life. We've seen that he is that gate. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 shows us that uh, what it looks like for those who thought they had entered by the right gate but are sorely mistaken. Let me make one thing crystal clear from the onset of our look at this uh, uh, right now. This message, what Jesus is saying here is not directly for the clearly lost. That would be those who some would call the bottom dwellers of society. This message isn't even for those who are successful by cultural standards, but adamantly deny the existence of God. That'd be people like Penn Jillette, Richard Dawkins, or Arian Foster. Here, Jesus is not addressing the clearly lost and rebellious heathens of the world. He is addressing the confidently religious. 
He is addressing those who put all their hope in a one-time profession of faith, but though they have said that they believe with their mouths, their hearts remain stone. They may have the appearance of godliness even, but they deny its power, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, 5. What we're talking about here really comes down to the doctrine of assurance. The doctrine of assurance is beautifully explained through the book of 1 John. And as a church, we spent some time last fall walking through that book. As you go through the book of 1 John, and I suggest that all of us do this on a fairly regular basis, you're going to gain some valuable insight on the assurance there is in Christ Jesus. You will see that if you willfully and continually walk in sin while claiming fellowship with Jesus, you'll be found to be lying, having no fellowship with Christ. You'll see that salvation does not mean that you never sin again, but rather that you are given a repentant heart and continually cling to the source of forgiveness. You'll see that it is Christ's sacrifice on the cross that paid the debt for your sin. You'll see that those who know the Lord want to grow in their faith. You'll see that this world has nothing to love in it. This world is passing away, but those who do the will of God abide forever. You'll see that sin is lawlessness, and those who happily remain in sin have not seen the Lord, nor do they know him. You will see that all those who truly believe in the name of the Son of God truly have eternal life. The book of 1 John is a beautiful exposition of what it truly means to be saved and secure forever and ever. I can't properly explain all of its contents in just a couple minutes of this sermon. So please go back, read that for yourselves. Let that be your homework. <laughs> but I bring that up because a proper understanding of the doctrine of assurance of salvation is integral to understanding what we see here in our text in Matthew. I want to give you two complementary truths that we must understand before we go much further. Number one. No one can pluck you from the Father's hand. That's John 10, 29. That is to say that if you are truly saved by grace through faith, then you will always be saved by grace through faith. You can't even send yourself out of the Father's hand. But at the same time, we need to understand truth too. Many people make false professions that they cling to for security rather than clinging to the Father in whose hand they say they are in. Let me sum it up a little bit easier. No one can pluck you from the Father's hand, but many people would rather say they're in his hand than actually be there. So you say, Brad, what do you mean? How, how can I know if I'm actually in the Father's hand or if I'm just saying that? Well, let me give you a few pointers on that. Number one, go back and read 1 John like I mentioned. It's filled with doctrinal tests for you to use to evaluate your position before the Lord. Secondly, I cannot give you assurance of your salvation. Brad Pierce doesn't get that job, nor would I be qualified to even attempt it. But thank God that he assures believers of their salvation through the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, jot down Romans 8, 14 through 16. It says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Assurance, you want assurance of salvation? Assurance comes from the word of God and the spirit of God. That's where you'll find real assurance. Quick and easy man-given assurance will deceive you. 
But let's look at a couple manifestations of false conversions in our text. Look at verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here you see someone who proclaims correct truth, but clearly were not saved and thus made into a new creation. Despite the truth they knew about Jesus, it did not make an impact on their lives. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a, there's a whole lot going on in that phrase. First off, look at what this individual says to Jesus. They call him Lord, Lord. Now, it's important to know uh, just how important the repetition of words is. Lord used one time. Kurios could have been uh, a relatively common expression of respect. It was a honor and respectful signification to call someone Lord, but many people could be appropriately called that. It could be a political leader, a military leader, maybe a religious leader. All of them could have been given such a title, but the repetition of the word elevates its meaning. This person is identifying Jesus as someone even more worthy of honor and respect than an average teacher. This points to this person understanding the divinity of Jesus. Jesus says not everyone who acknowledges him as Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Some will, some who understand he is Lord, Lord, but not everyone. It is those who know Jesus as Lord and do the will of the Father who enter into heaven. Now, we got to pause here for just a second. You could easily look at what I just said there and say that it's a two-step process for salvation. Brad, you just said acknowledge the Lord and then do the works in the will of the Father. Then you will be allowed to enter into heaven. That's not the point you should get from this. We'll expand on that a little bit as we go into verse 22, but works don't save a person. One pastor said, Jesus was not suggesting that works are meritorious for salvation, but that true faith will not fail to produce the fruit of good works. Even your best deeds do not save you. But when you truly believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and your life is then led by the Holy Spirit, you are going to produce fruit. You are going to be involved in good deeds for the glory of God. Works are not a prerequisite to gaining salvation, but a product of it. Now, I want to address the elephant in the room right now, and you may not see it, but I surely do. We have to be soberly aware that there are many people who would say that Jesus is Lord, Lord, and they have a knowledge of who he is with no significant or substantive desire to do the will of the Father in their lives. Our country is plagued by what is called easy believism, fueled by cheap grace. There are many people that think that they are saved not because they have life-shattering faith in the God incarnate who died for them, but rather because one time in Bible school they prayed a prayer and took a dip in the baptistry. If you ask them, they may say, yeah, I'm a Christian. They might say, uh, I share Bible verses on Facebook from time to time. But at the end of the day, honoring God, and seeking to glorify his name is an afterthought, if it's a thought at all. I recently reached out to a friend of mine that I've known since elementary school. 
I hadn't talked to this guy in years, but I could see online that he was going through some pretty rough waters in life. Even if he didn't know it, he was getting twisted up in some really harmful things that were clearly antithetical to pursuing godliness as presented in scripture. So I thought his eternal soul was too precious not to say something. So I very lovingly reached out to him and I was going to share the gospel with him. I use the qualifying questions from share Jesus without fear. That's an evangelistic method we went through over the summer. And so I asked him those questions, which are, do you have any kind of spiritual belief to you who is Jesus? Do you believe there is a heaven and hell? Uh, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? If it's heaven, why? And wouldn't you know it, but talking to him, he gave me basically the most perfectly orthodox and correct Christian understanding response to every single question. I was floored. On one level, I was excited. This guy knew the gospel. Praise the Lord. So from there, I started talking about spirit, uh, about discipleship, about spiritual growth and following the Lord in everyday life. And the conversation stopped. There was no interest in pursuing godliness and biblical application. We went from having a really great conversation to being completely shut out. But here's the thing. My friend, nor anyone for that matter, has to prove to me, has to prove to Brad Pierce that they are saved. Getting my stamp of approval won't do you any good. But Jesus says in our text this morning that just because you know who he is, it doesn't mean you're saved. James 2.19 tells us even the demons know who Jesus is and what he did. But true faith is life shattering and produces the fruits of righteousness. Pray for my friend. I'm afraid when his time of judgment comes, it'll be like the scene Jesus is describing here in verse 21. Simply professing that Jesus is Lord, even Lord, Lord, doesn't grant entry to heaven. It is full authentic faith in him that leads to subsequent submission in all facets of life. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? Salvation and obedience go hand in hand. They're inseparable. Jesus didn't die and rise again to make you a new creation that's indistinguishable from the old creation. No, 2 Corinthians says the old has passed away and the new has come. A one-time profession of faith is not something to hang your hat on, but neither are your works, as we see in verse 22. Look at verse 22 of Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lord, didn't we not do a lot of amazing things in your name? Weren't they good enough? Jesus' response is they weren't working in his name. They didn't know him. Rather, they are workers of lawlessness. How is that even possible? Well, here's what we need to know. Many who will say to Jesus that they did great things in his name, like the first group, they claimed to have faith in Jesus, but they never really submitted to him. They may have done what would be perceived as righteous deeds by other people, but they never really cared and called on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so their deeds were nothing more than filthy rags. 
They prophesied, cast out demons, did mighty works, but they were not regenerate. How is this possible? Well, one scholar suggests three options. Number one is that they were allowed to do great things by God's power, but like Balaam and Caiaphas, they were wicked. A second option is that those, uh, those amazing acts that they did were actually accomplished through Satan's power. We're told in 2 Thessalonians that Satan will use his power to make false signs and wonders to deceive people. Or a third option is that these works are lies. The miracles or mighty works they did were fakes. Much like a guy right now going around miraculously elongating legs to fix back pain. In all likelihood, on the day of judgment, all three of those categories will be represented. Ultimately, how or even if those works were accomplished is insignificant. The many who are represented in verse 22 may or may not have done great things and claimed to do them in the name of the Lord. But when it comes down to it, this text makes it clear that they did not have the desire to do the will of the Lord. That is evident because of Jesus's response. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I just want to take a side step for a second to say, Jesus saying, I never knew you is not a shot or a detriment to his omniscience. Rather, it's a term that refers to intimate knowledge. He's saying that, sure, you have done these mighty things, but you were never a child of God. You were never adopted into the family of God. You never abided in me. You did things, but I did not know you in that way. And just these three verses, we are confronted with some very serious truth. We see that neither a basic knowledge of Christ nor a plethora of good works are sufficient enough for salvation. Jesus says in these verses that many will be in the categories and many will hear, I never knew you. It's my goal in these last few moments that we have here that you will be equipped and led by the Spirit to ensure that you are not one of those many. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize about this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I would love for you to take the rest of this day or the rest of your time listening to this this morning to examine yourself. Are you really in the faith? Or have you been putting your hope in a profession you made 30 years ago that made no real impact on your life? Are you listening to this today because you know God wants you to uh, be listening to uh, uh, sermons and, and, and growing in your faith? Or do you think that checking in on a podcast will be enough to keep you off the eternal naughty list? Test yourself. What's your motivation for the things that you do? Are you heaping up wealth and comfort to live your best life now? Or are you genuinely concerned with giving God the glory, not to earn your spot into heaven, but because you know that he is truly worthy of all glory, honor, and praise? Church, we shouldn't be afraid of testing ourselves and our motives. If we know Jesus, why would we be afraid? Do we not realize that Christ is in us, it says there in 2 Corinthians? If he truly is in us, then when we test ourselves, then that's what we'll find. And we can keep on singing, oh, happy day, oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. Unless that test has failed. 
And instead, we find that our faith isn't really in Jesus. Our faith was in our works. Our hope was in our profession at Bible school. Our trust was in being baptized. If that is what we find, then we will see that we fail to meet the test and that Christ is not in us. And what should we do if that is the result of our testing? Should we shake our fists at the pastor and fly out of the back of the church? Should we keep on living for ourselves and trusting in our works or our profession that we made a long ago? Should we keep quiet for fear of embarrassment? No, no to all of those things. If you find that you failed the test and that Christ is not in you, then praise God that you were given this blessed opportunity to evaluate yourself now before the time of judgment comes. If you fail the test and Christ is not in you, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Stop playing games. Respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord today. One pastor said mere professed devotion, fake devotion, mere professed devotion to Christ is nothing more than another Judas kiss. Judas said he was a follower of the Lord and then he turned him over to be killed. Now thanks be to God that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And when Jesus was tried and eventually killed, he would in so be the perfect sacrifice to once and all, for all cover the cost of sin for all those who would ever believe in him. Jesus says that those who love him, those who have faith in him, those who call on him as Lord, Lord, they do what he commands of him. The true Christian's life is marked by a desire to actually follow Christ. The pastor said, God's will may not be for the perfection of the true believer's earthly life, but it is the direction of it. Submit to Christ and seek to glorify God by doing his will for his glory. You're not perfect and you're never going to be perfect on this side of heaven, but it is God's will that we desire to please him. Psalm 147 verses 10 and 11 says, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. I am imploring you this morning as an ambassador of Christ to examine yourself beyond simple actions and professions and ask yourself if you truly fear the Lord and hope in his steadfast love. I am not calling for perfection, I am calling you to check your priorities and be honest with yourself and God. You can see in scripture like Romans chapter 7 that being truly saved by grace through faith does not mean that we will always be perfect and sinless. But even in our failures, the Christian's life is marked by a desire to repent and glorify God. A person who has no desire for continued cleansing has reason to doubt that he even came to the Lord to receive salvation in the first place. Ask yourself, cry out to the Lord as well. Ask yourself where you truly stand in relationship to him. The reality is the stakes are too high to get this wrong. The prophet Nahum in chapter one, verses seven and eight of Nahum says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. 
Let me ask you this morning. Have you repented of your self-dependency? Do you take refuge in the Lord? Are you doing that today? If you would, would you reach out? Would you call 859-813-0369 or email brad at durbanchurch.org? I would love to help you walk through thinking about what it means to truly understand Jesus as Lord. Do that today. Don't wait. The stakes are too high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all those who are able to listen to this message. Lord, I I pray that we wouldn't put our hope in a profession or in what we do, but we will put all our hope in the cross of Jesus. I will not boast in anything of myself, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's all my hope, all that any of us can truly hope in. Anything that we can put stock in is Jesus Christ and nothing else. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody understanding this for the first time today, truly understanding it, maybe peeling back the layers of uh, false religion that have been built up in their lives, Lord, I pray that you would inspire them to reach out, that they would cry out and publicly profess you as Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.